This is an ABC podcast. I'm Claire Wright and this is Shooting the Past, where every picture is worth at least a thousand words, if not a whole history. I never went in for those family portraits you can get at the large retail emporiums. You know, the ones where you doll your kids up in their newest outfits to take a picture. But I have friends whose fridges and walls are covered in such photos, taken year after year. An illustrated guide to a family's progress, like pencil marks on a doorframe. Maybe that's why I'm so drawn to this photograph, taken in 1912. In it, a mother sits in the centre of her brood, four young children and a lap baby. It's a fairly standard image of Federation-era respectability. The family is all dressed in dark, well-tailored clothing. The children's little leather boots are polished. The mother's hair is set in a fashionable pompadour. Her eyes are downcast. So far, so Edwardian. But there are three elements of this photo that have me spellbound and perplexed. First, there's no family patriarch. Second, the well-heeled family are Chinese. And finally, there is the question of the writing that's scrawled around the margins and at the bottom, a signature, Detective Inspector Gleason. There's a story here, I'm sure of it. The missing father, the marginalia, the detective. Who are these people? And why do they appear to have come to the attention of the authorities? My first port of call is curator and historian Dr Sophie Couchman. What Sophie's about to reveal to me is that this photograph is so much more than just a family portrait. The first thing that you see is the kind of brutal hole, puncture hole in the corner, which tells you that it has an administrative function. So this photo and the annotations, you can you very quickly see that it's related to immigration. You can see Jay Gleason's signature down the bottom, Detective Inspector. He's a man who's associated with a lot of immigration files because he was in charge of monitoring the movement of Chinese in Victoria. It's talking about holding a copy of the photograph and it talks about the arrival of Alice and Ethel Tong on a particular ship in a particular on a particular day. Okay, so from those annotations down the bottom, you can tell that we're looking at an immigration photograph. What about the annotations around the edges, the the marginalia there that with a, a rather crude line drawn to the heads of the children? The, the, the annotations there are identifying the people in the photograph. So we've got Ethel, Alice, but then when we get to um, Mother and Phyllis, we, we see they both died in China. Oh, that's what that says. And then Elsie died in China. And then Willie stated to be alive in China. So can you hazard a guess at what the photograph was used for? What's the purpose of this photograph? Well, this photograph was actually held in a file in the National Archives, held as part of the Department of Customs, which was the precursor to the Immigration Department. And so we can tell from the context of the file around it, in conjunction with the annotations here, um, what was going on. Sophie, do you know who the family is in this photograph? They're the Chin Tong family. 
Chen Tong, who was the father, was a storekeeper um, and they lived in a very tiny little house in Cohen Place off Little Burke Street in Melbourne and the five children were all born in Melbourne. They're born from sort of 1900 onwards, the children, and Chen Tong, uh, who's the father, who's absent from the, from the image, died in 1912. After his, his death, actually only two months after his death, the family get onto a ship and head to Hong Kong and then to China. So, Sophie, you think this photograph was taken in 1912 just before the family went back to China? Yes, I do. Um, the darkness of the clothes suggests that maybe they're wearing funerary morning wear. And I think it was specifically taken because they were going back. And one of the reasons we know this is because I found another copy of the photograph. It's exactly the same photo and it's held in a private collection, which is where you might expect a photo like this to be to be held, by the descendant of another Chinese family who lived in Melbourne's Chinatown. And what I think that they did before they left was that they gave copies of the photo to various uh, friends and acquaintances. Like a keepsake. Yeah, like a keepsake. But they were also being very pragmatic in giving the photos out because even though they were leaving to go back to the village, they did intend to come back. What Sophie's told me makes it clear that this is a photo with a dual purpose, a private keepsake, but also a public travel document. But I'm still confused. The original studio copy is dated 1912, but the copy that Sophie found in the immigration archives has 1916 handwritten on it. Why the discrepancy? What you've got here then is Ethel and Alice returning back to Melbourne after being in China for four years. Only um, Ethel and Alice. That's right. Um, as you can tell from the, the, the marginalia, the mother and the baby both died, as did the second um, daughter. Okay, so if we read all of these margin notes, together we actually get a story about what has happened to this family over this four-year period. That's right. So mum and five children go over in, in 1912 and only two come back. Two come back and then eventually Willie also comes back. And I think they knew that there might be difficulties getting back into Australia. Why do you think that? Because the the 1901 Immigration Restriction Act had a clause in it that, that the administrators used to block non-white immigration. It was a dictation test. They could choose who they gave it to and they could ensure that those people failed that test. So this is part of the mechanism of the white Australia policy? That's right. And the difficulty with this is that when people are getting off the ship and the authorities are getting, you know... A, are, are checking them out, how are they determining who comes in and who doesn't? They're doing it based on how people look. Now, if you're Australian-born Chinese, like these children are, they look Chinese, but they were born in Australia. 
So they're travelling on their birth certificates. Now, birth certificates then, as now, don't have a photo attached to them. So effectively, this family photograph, a studio portrait, is being used as an identification photograph in lieu of a passport or other visual way of identifying the family. That's right. So, you know, these children, when they came back, Alice was interviewed, friends of theirs were interviewed before they were identified and allowed to land. And were there instances that you're aware of where, say, an Australian-born person like Alice Tong was trying to come back to her home in Australia and was not allowed entry because somebody um, at customs couldn't match her face to a photograph? Yeah, there was another girl, Sui Lan, who also came and her father was in WA and he had to hot-foot it from WA all the way to Melbourne to identify her uh, on the ship and that made the papers. So, Sophie, would you say that the Tongs were victims of a repressive immigration system and and possibly an imprecise ID system or, or did they actually successfully negotiate the system to their own advantage? I think they're both. Alice and Ethel, when they arrived in 1916, sat on the ship for two days while authorities worked out who they were and proved their identity. But in the end, they did prove their identity. Former teachers um, identified them and remembered them quite fondly and they then became came back to Australia and, and part of the community in Australia systems evolved and it was around this time that authorities started keeping a register of people who were travelling on their birth certificates. So authorities were as keen to avoid the two young girls on a ship situation for two days um, as the Chinese were. The bureaucracy got more tangled and more evolved. You had to have two photos and front and side and all this business. But at the same time, you did have mobility and provided you jumped the hoops, you could come and go. I want to know more about Mrs Tong, the demure-looking woman who understood the immigration system so well that she distributed copies of her family portrait to other community members as an insurance policy against being barred entry to her own home. I'm in Melbourne's Chinatown at the location of the old Tong family home in Cohen Place. I've arranged to meet the descendants of Mrs Tong in the busy Chinese tea house that now occupies the site. I'm Christina Lop. I'm the granddaughter of the oldest uh, girl that's in the photo, Alice. Julie Crawford, and as Christina said, we're cousins, and Alice was our grandmother. The copy of the photograph that I have here identifies this woman, your grandmother, as Alice. How did you know her? Nana, we called her, but everyone else called her Auntie Yuki which is Jade, so she was Bolyuk. And I think, you know, within the family they referred to each other um, as their Chinese names. Yes. But anyone else in the community, and officially, uh, I think they use their English names. Yes. So on all their official documentation. And Willie was always Uncle Singh to yes, us. that's right. So Uncle Singh. Yeah. Can I ask you, what do you see when you look at this photograph? Um, I just see... Um, my great-grandmother looking very sad, I think, and the four daughters 
also looking sort of sad and wary, um, bearing in mind that they've just lost their father and they're about to embark on a trip to a to, to the children at least, a foreign place. And but curiously, their brother, um, Uncle Singh, looks quite happy. So Julie, what do you see when you look at this photograph? Well, strangers really. It's nice to see how they were as young people, um, but it's a bit sad that they all didn't come back. That's true, it's, it's sad, it has that sad overtones because three of the six people there didn't survive no. for very long. And they're all dressed in black, mm. so they're still in mourning from, for the father. So I guess that's another reason why they're sad, except for Uncle Sim, who would be difficult to suppress, I imagine. <laughs> He's now the man of the family. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's right. yeah, that's right. And how much of, of your grandmother's story has been passed down to you? None, really. She never, ever spoke of when she was a child, not even going back to China or anything. No. She came back when she was 16 because the Guardian Herbalist arranged a marriage with um, someone from an influential family up in Bendigo. And so she was only 16, got married, and when she was 19, went back to Hong Kong for this big birthday party and my father was born over there. He's the only one in the whole family born outside of Australia. So you two are fourth generation Australians. If your great grandmother, who is the mother in the, in yeah. the photograph, if she's yes. the first to come out, yes. that makes her first generation. Yes. So Alice and second. Ethel and the siblings are second. So your parents are third. Yes. yes. So, we're so we're fourth. So you're fourth. Yes. So you're fourth generation Australian born. Yes. And there was certainly oh, no yes. expectation oh, no. that you would marry, even within the Chinese community. Well, no. they would have liked it, but yes, that's true. There was nothing they could do about it. So you didn't. You, you no. didn't. You married no, married out, as they say. Not even married. Right. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, terrible assumptions on my part. <laughs> and so, how do you identify as as Chinese Australians, or as Australian Chinese, or just as Australians? Fundamentally as Australians, yes, but because yeah. we look Chinese, yes. when you go overseas, people are astonished that you've got an Australian accent. Mm. They can't really picture it, you know, you speak to people on the phone and they think that uh, you must be just an ordinary Aussie. So the appearance is still a really strong visual clue for people mm. as to how That's to place right. you. Yeah. I remember when I was younger and at school, people asking me, um, where are you from? And which always puzzled me. And when I said I had Chinese background, they'd say, so have you been back? And I thought, back where? <laughs> you know, this, is, this is where I was born. This is what all I've known. Seven men from seven different countries intend of their own free choice to become Australian citizens in a country which they believe and which we believe endeavours to give equal opportunities to all of its citizens regardless of race or of class or of creed.
Those words were spoken by Minister for Immigration Arthur Corwell in 1949 at the very first Australian citizenship ceremony. But Alice and Ethel Tong were Australian-born, and yet they still had to prove their bona fides. So were they citizens in law, if not in appearance? I must admit, I'm still grappling with the question of why the Tongs had to jump through so many administrative hoops. It's time to find an expert. My name is Professor Kim Rubenstein, and I'm a professor at the Australian National University in the law school there. And my particular area of expertise is in Australian citizenship. So, Kim, you are the perfect person for me to speak to now Mm -hmm. at this stage in my journey with this photograph because I have to admit I'm pretty confused about a number of concepts that have been raised. So can you start off by telling me what does it mean to be a citizen of Australia? Well, the reason why you're struggling is because of the historical evolution of membership in Australia. And I'd say you're not the only person to struggle. High court judges are also struggling with that concept. But to give you a sort of a broad sense of what it means to be a citizen, when you talk about someone being a citizen, it means that they are the fullest member of that community in the legal sense. So that if we think of the community, the relationship between the state and the individual. So we live in the state or the nation of Australia and the term being an Australian citizen is the fullest strength membership that you can have. But the reason why you've come across all these other terms is that term was not around as a legal term in 1901 when Australia was formed. So when did it become possible to become an Australian citizen? In 1901, the constitution actually refers to members as British subjects or as residents in any of the territories. And so that reflected part of the common law's development in legal terms of membership in Australia. So anyone born in Australia at 1901, anyone born in Australia was a subject of the Crown. And the opposite of subject status at that time was alien. So the term alien becomes really important. Right, so you're either a subject or you were an alien. Correct. All of those British subjects who were born in Australia became Australian citizens on the 26th of January 1949. So up until that date, we were solely British subjects. And then from that date, we became both British subjects and Australian citizens. We didn't lose British subject status. There was this real desire by the Australian community in the parliament to not see that move to citizenship or recognising citizenship as, as to any dilution of their identity as British subjects. So when did we lose that particular neurosis? We didn't lose that until 1987 And it was after the British lost British subjects. So Australians were British subjects longer than the British. They moved to the term British citizen and so lost British subject status in the UK before we in Australia lost it. So Alice and Ethel Tong, who were Australian-born at the time of this photograph in 1912, would have been British subjects. Correct. Non-aliens. Correct maybe casually referred to as Australian citizens, but not legally. I think casually they wouldn't have been referred to as Australian citizens. And this is a broader discussion. Many people who were actually subjects were referred to as aliens because they picked up the discourse of alien as other rather than the formal legal 
term alien as someone who is not a subject of the Queen. So there were many subjects like this family who regular members of the community may have looked across at them in the street and thought of them as aliens, even though they were formerly legally subjects. And that distinction would have been made purely on their looks? Yes, I think at that particular time. And in fact, not only purely on their looks, but picking up the discourse of the politics of that time. So prior to 1949, if you immigrated to Australia, what did you become? An Australian? No, you didn't. You didn't. You became a British subject resident in Australia. Of course, everyone did refer to each other as Australians. And even in the convention debates in um, the 1890s, when they were looking at drafting the constitution, there was a discussion about whether they would include citizenship. And this is quite an important point for this photo, because part of the reason why they chose not to include citizenship was a desire to continue to discriminate as to who came into the country. There was a recognition that if they went to the effort of actually putting citizenship into the constitution, they'd have to be more explicit about defining who was allowed in and out of the country. Whereas if they kept British subject status, there was less transparency about the fact that they wanted to continue to discriminate against non-white British subjects. So some British subjects were being discriminated against through the Migration Act or the Immigration Act. So British subjects resident in Hong Kong, who they may wish to be able to prevent coming into the country. And so was Chinese immigration to Australia in the 19th century central to the development of citizenship laws? Exactly. In in my view, it was pretty fundamental to the foundations of our constitutional document that there was this conscious desire to be able to continue to preclude certain British subjects from coming into Australia. They were concerned about maintaining that legal power to exclude non-white, specifically Chinese immigration. The white Australia policy. Well, I think it's a good and they should really have it and keep out the coloured races. I think it's a little bit late for that. I think we should take Asians in. Because the coloured races, when they get into a white country, then they um, want to intermarry and I don't think it's fair on the children. White Australian policy. Mm. I think it's very good. Same, I wouldn't like to see the place overrun by all these other nations. So, Kim, would it be true to say that fear and antagonism towards so-called aliens, whether legally or visually conceived, especially the Chinese, fostered a particularly Australian sense of nationhood? In a way, our whole history, which starts exactly as you've just described, is about defining ourselves by who we are not rather than who we are. So we've defined ourselves through the concept of alienage rather than defining ourselves through a holistic sense of who we are as a nation. And I think that that has been fundamental, that legal foundation and the lack of capacity to address that in our constitution to this very day provides that continuing illness that persists in influencing the public discussion about questions of membership. Each of the changes, significant changes along the way with the Citizenship Act have arguably been through an interest around immigration policy and who we allow in and out of the country. But of course, citizenship is not just about regulating immigration. Citizenship is also about, well, birth in Australia. But in 1984, the Citizenship Act was amended 
to say that birth in Australia is no longer enough to become an Australian citizen. You need a parent who is a permanent resident or an Australian citizen to automatically become an Australian citizen by birth. So it, it really seems that this the murkiness of the way that laws were created at the turn of the, the century at Federation still has a very far-reaching consequences for the way that we understand ourselves, not just legally, but culturally as Australians today. Absolutely. And in fact, if you even think through a move to a republic, we're saying we want an Australian citizen as a, as a head of state, but there's no legally protected concept of Australian citizen in the constitution. And part of that is because of those very origins that you're talking about. So it does and has had a far-reaching effect on legal concepts, but on broader public understandings of membership in Australia. Kim, where do Indigenous Australians mm. fit in to this whole conundrum of citizenship? The Indigenous Australians fit into this story in a way that clearly shows the disjuncture between legal status and rights. Indigenous Australians are, of course, born in Australia. So by being born in Australia from the time of the colonial experiment, they were British subjects by virtue of being born in British territory. And the reason why people are confused is because even though they were citizens, they didn't necessarily have the rights that we associate with citizenship. Like the right to vote, for example. Like the right to vote. They didn't get the right to vote in the Commonwealth until 1962. So that even though they were citizens, it's a reminder that citizenship doesn't necessarily lead to an equality of rights. And so in the same sense, you could say here that those natural-born members of this family were full members as British subjects and would have become Australian citizens on the 26th of January 1949. But it was certainly constitutionally possible for the Commonwealth to legislate to treat them differently, even though they were Australian citizens. So George Orwell might have said that not all citizens are created equally. That's right. And Australia is actually a, a very un unfortunate example of that being the case. There is not a clear sense in our constitution to protect against that discriminatory practice. Kim, as a legal scholar, what do you see when you look at this photograph? I'm looking at this as a sixth-generation Australian Jewish woman rather than as a legal scholar. So there's no adult man in... That's one of the first things that I see. I see that very formal framework of those traditional family shots... But it doesn't really tell me anything other than an attempt to be like the norm of the time of sitting in a photo in a way that would have been a traditional photo, I imagine, at that time. And do you think that attempt to fit into the image of the Edwardian family is part of the necessity to not look alien? Putting that into the context of knowledge of the time, I think that there was no question that they knew that they would continue to be seen as other despite their legal status. And so that does make sense to think that they were trying to show the community that in every other respect they were like the mainstream British subjects. And did, do you have Chinese names yourself? I do. Mine is um, Yukyip, which is Jade Leaf. Um, and I have a twin sister, and she is Golden Branch, so because she was five minutes earlier than I. And how do you say Golden Branch in Chinese? Oh, I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
remember that you can see the photograph from today's episode on the Shooting the Past website at ABC Online. My thanks to guests Christina Law and Julie Crawford, Dr Sophie Couchman and Professor Kim Rubenstein. Shout out to the hospitable staff and management at the Tea House in Chinatown. Thanks also to the Shooting the Past production team. In the next episode of Shooting the Past, a fishy-looking photograph throws me into the deep end of the battle between industry and sustainability. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.